You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome to Saturday Morning Live on the 10th of December. Uh, it's uh, 10.05 and you're joined by myself in the studio today, Shazil Lone, and my co-presenter today, Zishan Mirza. Zishan, good morning. Good morning. How are things? Yeah, very well, thanks. It's uh, extremely cold. Yes, it is. We're in the studio. Yeah, indeed, nice warm studio. But yeah, no, temperatures are dropping outside and weather warnings, I think, of uh, blizzards and snow still to come, apparently. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, I think we can expect, was it three or four centimetres of snow they were yeah. this yeah. week? Um, so yeah, it, the temperature's dropping. Um, exactly, on. yeah. So uh, yeah, we're adjusting to that. Um, obviously, the uh, festive season is approaching as well, so people will be on holidays and what have you. But uh, there'll be various things that we'll be discussing today. I think strikes will be form part of that uh, discussion also. Um, but, um, yep, uh, we are a live show. Um, we will today be discussing various things. There's been um, the racism uh, issue surrounding the royal family and the Netflix um a uh, show between Meghan and uh, Harry's expose, shall we say. Uh, so we'll be discussing that. We'll be discussing the strikes that are happening in the country, in the UK. And um, there will be also, you know, the racism row of, of what happened recently where the question, where are you really from, has come to the fore. Yeah. So we'll discuss all those points. Um, we'll see how we go. Uh, if you do feel free uh, to have an opinion or want to say something on the topic, you can call us uh, on um, our Voice of Islam live Twitter and website. The, the number to call is 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878 or at our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK or via the website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk. But... Um, also joined today by, um, remotely today, Hamza Vanderman. Hamza, you're there? Welcome. How is everybody? Very well. Are you um, nice and warm in your place of abode today? <laughs> the, um, the heating's turned up, and I'm pretty miserly with the, uh, with the way that the uh, energy bills are these days. So it's, uh, it's a four-layer four rule in our household. Okay, okay, that's been employed, huh? Excellent, yeah, yeah. excellent. Okay, good, good, good. Um, Hamza, kick us off today with the uh, news roundup. What's been going on in the world? Take us away. I think the big story in the UK uh, this week and running into next week, um, and probably will be for the next few months, is the um, story around the strike, strike actions. Uh, and so this week it's been the railway um, strikes that are going to start next week, four days next week. Um, that have come to the fore um, with the RMT also saying that the members will be striking um, during the Christmas break. And so obviously that's, you know, that's a real um, sucker punch for lots of people uh, in the UK uh, around Christmas time, people wanting to meet up with each other, people wanting to travel in and around, uh, in and around the country, um, especially after the uh, COVID situation over the last few years and the impact that that's had on meeting people during Christmas you know this was going to be the first Christmas that felt um, you know normal being able to meet people um, you know London's been quite busy this past week I thought much mm. busier than it has been I think for the last for the last two years um, and you know I think the hospitality industry uh, is pretty upset with this I think the public's pretty upset with this but you know, the RMC wants to defend its members, uh, wants its members to be paid uh, what it sees as the right amount, wants its members um, to be treated with respect. 
uh, and it's their right, their duty almost, uh, if they don't think that's the case, to take action um, to make uh, to, to make people aware of that and to try to get the best deal that they can for their workers. So there are discussions going on at the moment. Um, overnight, Mick Lynch uh, has said, who's the head of the RMT, has said that he's still willing to meet with Rishi Sunak um, to try and get through this, uh, to get through this problem, get through this loggerhead. He has accused the government at the moment of essentially torpedoing talks and saying that they are not interested in coming up with a solution. Hmm. Um, and that was because at the last round of negotiations, at the last minute, the government inserted some new terms around driver-only operations. So it's not just about pay, it's also about number of, number of staff required. And the government put in this uh, clause around driver-only operations, which basically means you need less workers on each uh, train. Hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously the union's not happy about that because um, it, that means reducing the number of people employed yeah. um, and losing members. So that kind of at, its, at the outset, um, uh, you know, totally derailed the negotiations. Um, and it's not usual for government to intervene. This is a negotiation between the owners and the railway lines rather than government and union. And the, the unions are accusing the government of getting involved and to, to, to torpedoing the uh, the talk. So the union are after 10% pay rises. They've been offered um, 8% pay rises, but the addition of these reforms around driver-only operations, and that is apparently a no-go zone. So it doesn't sound like the numbers are that far apart. There's probably more in the reforms um, that they're angry there's a separate um, union that is has put the 9% uh, to a vote and recommended it's rejected, but it has put it forward to a vote. Um, so these are not bad pay rises, you know, 10%, 9 9%, 8%, but it's the reform. So anyway, at the moment, we're hope, still hopeful things will get resolved going into the new year, but I think it's just a sign of um, where we are both in terms of railway, but also in terms of other uh, strikes that may go through next year, which the unions are saying will go through next year, nurses, um, NHS, uh, emergency services. It's, you know, we're in a tricky state. Yeah, I agree, Hamza. And I was just thinking about it as well. And I mean, what do you think about uh, the kind of demonization of Mick Lynch and, you know, uh, the cause of inflation being, you know, uh, public sector workers asking for a pay rise? You've seen this debate kind of unfold in the news a bit between politicians and uh, Mick Lynch and some of his spokespeople kind of you know, well, you shouldn't be asking for extra money because actually we're going through really high inflation at the moment and you shouldn't, you know, really be requesting for those pay rises. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that really cuts through to the public. I don't think the public listen to those types of arguments from the government. I think that that's unfair. The, the public are also, you know, every each one of us is being impacted by um, the cost of living crisis, by inflation. And, you know, when, um, Mark Harper, the transport minister, is out there, or, or was it Mark? One of the ministers was out there this week saying that nurses should, um, uh, what was it, make a uh, make a point and send a signal to Vladimir Putin um, that mm-hmm. his war will not cause further inflation by not by not wanting pay rises. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that type of comment is, you know. I think I think the public, you know, know know what's going on and think that just sounds too silly. I think the bit that Mick Lynch has maybe overstepped on and maybe underestimated is the public's uh, feelings around um, uh, being able to meet and having a normal Christmas. 
Yeah. And I think people are I think people are quite angry that these strikes are being planned for next week and the week after on the underground. I think people are I think people are pretty angry about that. And I guess the point of and Mick Lynch would say the point of the strike is to cause problems. I mean that is that is the point of the strikes. Um, to show where the power of the workforce is and to show that you need the workforce in order to deliver these services. But I think that's, that, that might be where he's overstepped. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting debate because, I, you know, in the papers as well, and you, if you often talk to people about it, you know, if you ask them, what do you think about the strikes? I think you, you obviously have some people who are in support of the strikes and, you know, um, bringing pay up and levelling the, the field a bit. But then you're also kind of... You also have the kind of people who are against the strikes and they don't really see why certain public sector workers should be paid more. Um, and I feel like Mick Lynch has really had to explain to the public how everything works relatively. And, you know, in the environment of inflation, that the fact that they're actually earning less, even if they are getting pay rises, um, and what that means, what's the impact of that net loss in their salary... You know, that's what he's been trying to emphasize. And I think in a way he's appealed to a lot of the Labour base that was lost when we switched, uh, when Labour switched over to from Jeremy Corbyn to Keir Starmer, where that kind of working class uh, feel, you know, trying to link policy to, you know, the working classes and, and be relatable is kind of coming back through Mick Lynch. Um, and it, it's been really interesting just to watch Mick essentially represent um, you know, a part of uh, of the former kind of Labour uh, Party, um, and that kind of transpire in the public. Um, but yeah, I, I think the way he's been treated in the media has been really interesting to watch, and how he's fought them as well. Any thoughts on that, Shazo? No, I think obviously, I think the way things have panned out, uh, I think look, everyone here. I mean, Hamza, Hamza mentioned it at the start of the show. You know, um, four layer rules, people being wary of you know economic conditions. Um, obviously, you know, uh, energy bills are going higher, inflation is going higher. We are expecting it to calm down at some stage, but I think, um, you know, people seem to be fighting for every, you know, penny, so to speak. And I think that's not an easy thing to uh, stomach in this environment in the sense that, you know, in terms of a government, the public funding and, and um, coffers of the, the Bank of England have been going lower and lower, and we have a, a massive, um, you know, tax and uh, fiscal hole to fill, you know, you know, fifty you know, upwards of, of billions. So, how do we go about doing that? And and you know, I guess you know, with the with the rail strikes in particular, it's just I think you lose a lot of goodwill, um, you know, with the public. I think that that makes a big difference. Like we talked about, you know, London reopening, the knock on effect of maybe what a two percent miss match or negotiation. And the fact that hotels, the hospitality industry, especially within central London, will be affected. And like when we had COVID, there was help for all of these firms. This time around, they say the effect will probably be knocking effect will be worse than what it was in COVID. Yet we've got no support at the same time. So those waitresses, the people who serve and will be in in the city, um, you know, or in and around hotels, will not be paid. Why? Because, you know, um, you know, Christmas parties, et cetera, et cetera, those types of functions, New Year's functions have all been cancelled because yeah. of that. Yeah. So, you know, there is a knock-on effect. And I think there are times perhaps to do this. And, and yes, everyone does, you know, feel like, you know, workers, you know, perhaps do deserve pay rises in, in line with inflation, at least at a very minimum. 
But um, but this is, you know, it's it's sort of, I think it leaves a little bit of bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, and it's a bit of a blame game, isn't it? So, you know, you've got Mick Lynch saying, well, it's the government that are forcing the rail strikes to go ahead. Mm. Um, and the government are saying, well, Mick Lynch's terms are unreasonable and you should look to him, you know, as the reason why the strikes yeah. are going ahead. So, um, it's it, yeah, there's a lot of kind of finger pointing. Um, but I struggled to see how Mick, like Mick has to represent the union, right, and all its members, and it's his job to strive for better pay and better working conditions. Yeah. But he can't do that relative to every other industry, yeah. right? And so it's very difficult, you know, when someone's saying to him, well, actually, you should think about all the under, other industries who aren't getting a pay rise, yeah. inflation, the inconvenience you're causing, etc. And he's just like, well, I have to represent my members. The reason union membership exists yeah. and the reason people pay for a union membership is mm. for that exact reason yeah. it's for somebody who's a bit more of a heavyweight than themselves can yeah. go in and say politically yeah. this is what's required so mm. um <clears throat> i don't really see i mean i would be curious to see what you think hamza um but yeah i don't really see how he gets out of it to be honest no that's right but he does have a choice in terms of when he wants to strike right sure it's not like he you know he can negotiate as you say to get those terms and members look to him to put to build a strategy to make that effective and to get the best deal. I'm not sure members are happy that he's calling the strike actions at this time. Mm. Um, I'm, I guess that's more of a tactical kind of strategic point around and get about how he goes to get his aims. But as Charles said, you know, the, it's not like um, this strike just affects commuters trying to get into town this week. Mm. It affects the economy of central London. I mean, we had, um, our, you know, our, our um, uh, Christmas uh, party was can- is cancelled next week because of the strikes. Um, and I'm sure, it's ha- I'm sure it's happening across the board. And you know, that's, that is, that's a lot of money in the economy. That's a lot of, mm. you know, as Charles said, waitresses, uh, waiters, serving staff, mm. the hospitality industry. After the last two years they've had, um, and those aren't people earning, you know, a lot of money. Um, will be, uh, they'll be absolutely furious. I'm, I'm sure of it. As will people who just want to meet their friends mm. um, and family. And I, I don't know. I think this. I think I. I don't think this is. I. I don't think this was the right approach after the last, you know, two years we've had. True. I Where mean, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think, like I said, you know, it's one thing to fight for your trade union members. I, I get that part of things, but. I think there's a, a time and a place uh, for these things to be done and points to be made. Uh, perhaps at the start of the year, you know, when the year's kicking off and, you know, you know, perhaps do it then, you know, you'll see an impact. But this, I think, has impacted a lot of people, perhaps, you know, vocational workers, perhaps students, you know, people who just, you know, would get hired over this period. Because in January yeah. and February, you know, there is a bit of a, um, a lag, you know, people perhaps don't spend because they've spent over this festive period and what have you. So, you know, I think that's something to take into account. But obviously, they feel this is the best thing they feel for their own interest. But I think sometimes you have to look at things holistically. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is the strikes have been kind of, they were initiated a while ago. Um, so what we I think from June, July, we've seen Mick in the papers um, and we've seen a series of strikes across different industries. Um, I, I don't know how toxic and planned, you know, ruining Christmas was um, as opposed to the continuity of the strikes from July. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the only thing I'd say. 
Fair enough. Um, so obviously that's up and coming. Uh, Hamza, what were the other sort of main stories that you've come across this week? Yeah, the other big big news, big announcement this week, um, which is interesting, is that the first coal mine in the UK got its uh, approval, first coal mine in 30 years, sorry, to get approval. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is in Whitehaven in Cumbria. Uh, the government has approved um, that that mine, that coal mine can open. Uh, it's a coking coal mine. Um, so the coal is going to be used for coking coal for steel, not for power stations. It's going to mm-hmm. be used to... To, to produce steel um, it's going to employ 500 people uh, and it's going to be used for local uh, I say local I mean national steel production um, where otherwise the UK would need to import the coking coal in order to produce that steel mm-hmm. uh, local MPs have been supportive uh, for a long time Cumbria County Council actually approved this mine uh, in 2019 but the government at that time um, said that it wanted to intervene and to look at it and make its own decision um, that's what's happened this week um, and so it's interesting because locally this seems to be very uh, popular and the area is not the most uh, prosperous it's going to provide jobs it's going to provide a boost to local economy um, it stops the country becoming uh, or being reliant on uh, imported uh, coking coal uh, which would be produced anyway but 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 it's obviously a coal mine <laughs> and the country yeah. <laughs> uh, for very obvious reasons for a long time. Well, for you know, 30 years, it tells its own story, has been trying to move away from coal, trying to move away from um, uh, those types of mines. And, you know, we have as a country signed up to the 2050 net zero mm. target. That seems quite difficult to try and uh, meet when you're doing things like this. Yeah. Um, so... You know, there's, it's an, it's a very, it's a very interesting case because I don't think it's, as, it's not, it's not quite as straightforward as we've opened a coal mine in order to produce coal power, um, but at the same time, obviously, it's not great uh, in terms of uh, the ongoing um, uh, battle with climate change. Yeah, and uh, as I understood it, um, a, a lot of that coal is going to be exported, so it's, f- it's for the purposes of profit rather than in like domestic sustainability. So. Um, I, I don't know how much we're talking about UK's energy dependence as opposed to just setting up a company for profit. And I think so. It's not. It's not at all for energy. Apparently, oh, from okay. what I understand. It's right. all. It's all to mm-hmm. produce. Um, it's all to produce steel. Yeah. Um, and the export is the kind of additional surplus, I guess, that doesn't isn't needed nationally. Oh, I see. Okay. As I understand it. But, you know, look, there's still energy requirements to do it. You're still digging coal up out of the ground. Um, and obviously that's not, you know, obviously not, not, a, not a benefit um, for climate change. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously we've, I mean, I say this with a pinch of salt, but we've been seen as the leaders on climate change along with America. So I think John Kerry is the um, he's Biden's climate aide, um, and he kind of had some comments about the UK uh, venturing into that project. Um, and I think it's more about the example we set for developing countries. We're often going to conferences and explaining, you know, net zero emissions and how to achieve it, etc. Um, we often criticise China, um, and then obviously, as Hamza just said, you know, we've signed up to the COP twenty seven zero emissions uh, promise. So. I think it, yeah, it slightly undermines all of that, um, but you can see why it's kind of happened given the need for infrastructure uh, following things like, I don't know, Brexit. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a tricky one. Um, definitely, you know, environmental, from an environmental perspective, um, I would say not good. Um, yeah, I mean, look, that was one of Biden's, um, you know, sort of election, you know, uh, manifestos, right? That's one of the things he came in on, um, you know, and in terms of the UK, we've had so many changes of God in terms of prime ministers. Uh, I think that sort of, I think no one's really committed to it as such. We as a country have, yes, agreed. Um, but I think we're at the stage now, especially when it comes to industry up and down the country, that it's it's a needs and must scenario here. You know, if there is a resource there, we'll use it while we're still, you know, 2030 is still far away. So at least, you know, in the meantime, um, I think it's it's more sort of a survival instinct perhaps to do these sort of things. And if it is for um, export out and what have you, then I guess, you know, you're using an actual resource of cash because we don't have much of a service industry left in this country, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean... So it, manufacturing, yeah. should I say? Yeah. Sorry, go on, Hamza. No, no, I was just going to say, so yeah, so um, uh, John Kerry, as you say, has been making some comments. He said, uh, I'm asking my people to give me a better download on exactly what the imp emissions implications are going to be. Coal is not exactly the direction that the world is trying to move in or needs to move in. What I want to know is the level of abatement here, such as whether the resulting greenhouse gases will be captured and stored, and the comparison of this particular process in the production of steel. So... Um, I think he's trying to be nuanced, as you say, you know, close ally of the uh, of the UK and doesn't want to come out shooting from the hip. But it's obvious that he's, uh, I think, concerned or cautious about this decision for the reasons he shall be laid out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, and I guess the other interesting aspect for me is, uh, you know, the Conservatives building a coal coal plant facility. Uh, which is ironic given Thatcher's history, in you know, and, and they're doing it in Cumbria as well. Um, so I'm all for the fact that it's creating jobs and mm -hmm. um, infrastructure for the UK, to, you know, to support it. Um, you know, uh, as long as I guess it doesn't get sucked away, because we know what the results of that are. Fair point. Very I, interesting point. Go yeah. Sorry, God, Yeah, no, I was just saying. Look, digressing. You know, Zishan, you mentioned uh, conservatives, you know, opening up. But generally speaking, the political landscape in the last few weeks and months since Rishi's come in have generally it's been a good effect. I mean, sterling has risen, economy has recovered somewhat, uh, markets have recovered uh, yeah. to to a small degree at least. Is it not? Has he not started off fairly well? Would you say, generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, like, recovering the damage that Liz Truss yeah. caused and then... It's a, it's a low benchmark to yeah, start from, right? Yeah. Um, but um, absolutely, I think, you know, he's he's doing a, a, a relatively good job. I don't think there's any kind of standout criticism for Rishi just yet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the the conservatives and environmental groups are consistently at odds to the point where you know i think the conservative party see a lot of the environmental groups and maybe rightly so as extremist organizations right or mm. groups who don't really understand the nuanced arguments going on behind energy and the consumption of it um and you know i think rishi Rishi, in that sense, is a classic conservative, mm. um, which is probably why you've seen something like this get approved. And I think it was headed up by Gove as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it probably speaks more to the need for those types of investments in the UK. Um, I think Rish that's where Rishi's strength is, is understanding 
how to get the UK back onto kind of an economic economic prosperity type path. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does. And but yeah, I think pleasing the environmental groups is probably not one of the things on his agenda. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing. I think we have to look at. I mean, obviously, it's it's been um, you know one of those topics that have come up. But I think when we look at Generally speaking, we're talking about an energy crisis in the country. You're talking about an interest rate crisis in the country. Um, you know, we had an issue with uh, the sterling value itself. I mean, Rishi, this this in the last week and a half has come out. There was a ring fencing previously of retail banks and investment banks. That's been um, taken away now so that they can be put together. And I think also the sort of regulatory requirements of smaller banks has been lowered in terms of cash reserves and what have you. So I think he's doing everything on a pro-business basis correctly. I think he's doing well because he understands the economy. Um, I just think in terms of the, the battle with environmental questions and queries is always the fact that it just seems to get bumped further down the yep. the, uh, the list in terms of priority. But I can understand why. Um, yeah, I can understand why as well. I think, you know, the science of climate change is very difficult. It's not the same as having conversations around other scientific um like explorations mm. you know it, and you often find having conversations with certain folks let's say on you know on the right where they won't there is a denial for climate change and it's not it's not stupid right it's it's very uh, rational to have that belief yeah. because there is a lack of evidence you know in some cases there's clear evidence in others um and it very much is you know, what do you concentrate on when you're talking about climate change? Do you, t- do you concentrate on human consumption? Do you mm. concentrate on, you know, like the effect on the environment or, you know, and things like that? So I think it's it's not unfair, but I think the youth are definitely concerned about it. Like, I, I think you see it coming out in elections and um, you see younger folks caring about it more and more. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say there are kind of some really outright um, bits of evidence in the world that climate change is, is causing problems. Um, so, like, I think rising sea levels is an imminent issue, you know, that could definitely threaten us in our li- lifetimes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, long term, I can see why, you know, Trump was able, for example, to, to monopolize on the ambiguity around environmental protection. Sure. Obviously, he took America out of that uh, yeah, agreement, right? Yeah, yeah, um, And Biden wants to put them back, or has put them back in already? I think he has, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, you, you know, you could argue that there's there's similar uh, Trump-like politicians over here and in the mm. UK as well when it comes to the environment, right? Yeah. Like, they're, they're just not keen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even, like, I remember when Nigel Farage was doing the whole Brexit thing, and yeah. he often spoke about the climate just, you know, yeah, being something a stick that we get bashed over the head with all the time. Um, but yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. And you know, I think the coal mine ultimately for jobs, etc. You know, to some degree is good news. In terms of just obviously environmentally, I was just looking through this when we were doing a little bit of the research that uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, uh, the uh, leader of the Ahmadi Muslim community worldwide, um, he had um, there was a climate change question was uh, posed to him in 2021 in January and he said climate change is a problem everywhere all across the world especially in the third world countries where the population is increasingly disproportionately uh, just to accommodate the increased population nations are developing new residential areas and because of this forests are being cut and the deforestation is a major issue of climate change so you have to be very particular that when one tree is cut two trees should be planted in return 
his holiness also said fuel consumption should also be reduced now that people have become so lazy that if they want to go from one place to another and the distance is only 100 or 200 yards instead of walking to the place they will use their motorbike or car in this way uh, pollution is increasing there are so many factors which is also causing pollution and climate change so we have to be very careful although we cannot say that because of the fear of climate change we should not have children so um, he went on to explain that human beings should do all that in their capacity to combat climate change and change their ways for the sake of the future of the human race. Um, and he's referred to a specific effect of climate change in Indonesia, where in Jakarta it's said to be sinking under the rising sea levels and there's a risk of submerging during the coming decades. His holiness said that not only Indonesians were afflicted by climate change and nor were they particularly causing it uh, through their means of living rather than climate change was a global phenomenon because of cause and effect. Um, so I guess there's a the bigger picture to, to that. Um, and, and just to add to that as well, mm. just quickly, the reason why um, Bolsonaro losing the election in Brazil, mm. um, I can't remember the chap he lost to. Lula. Lula, that's yep. it. Um, and the reason that was such a significant thing was because as soon as Lula came in, hmm. he um, absolutely obliterated Bolsonaro's kind of corporate greed policies that were focused on um, like exploiting the Amazon rainforest. Correct. Yes. And so Lulu's put a stop to all of that. Yeah. And you know that was a massive, massive win for environmentalists. Um, hmm. So some good news there. Absolutely. That's the only good news we'll be discussing on Brazil today. I will yeah. not be discussed or, or entertaining anything else in that regard. Hamza, uh, what, any other news roundup stories you you that caught your eye? <laughs> I thought we were going to do Brazil. No, I thought we were going to do one. I think we should be concentrating on cricket. It's a much more important thing in the world. Um, um, let's, hang on, before, before, we move, before we do sport, um, there, there was another interesting story sure. out of Germany. It, it, it seems pretty... Uh, strange but it's definitely worth mentioning mm. um, a lot of arrests uh, over the last week uh, now up to 52 arrests in Germany um, for an attempted uh, for, an, uh, for an attempted coup uh, to overthrow the government from the right wing um, this was apparently a group of uh, individuals uh, led by someone called Heinrich the 13th um, the organizations came from and as a Reichsberger, and yeah, he sounds like a comedy on. villain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he looks a bit like one as well, actually. Um, but I mean, the, the, the serious point here is that it, it, it was strange. It all did seem a bit um, comedic. A lot of these people were quite um, were quite old. It didn't seem uh, particularly well uh, well organised or well advanced. Um, but the police did think it was worth, and it was advanced enough, serious enough to make 52 arrests. That's by no. Uh, that's not a small number of arrests for something like this. Um, and whilst the chance of success, you know, were, was this group ever really going to overthrow the government successfully? You know, probably not. <clears throat> but the process of that organisation, the process of attempting uh, to do that would probably have been, you know, extremely dangerous. It probably would have caused, um, you know, a loss, of, a loss of life because these groups were um, highly weaponized. Um, and had and had access to arms, and so it does show that the you know the right wing in some of these countries do continue to grow uh, in strength. We've seen it in other elections, uh, and a country like Germany to have to make uh, these arrests these weeks um, and to be you know dealing with these problems just shows that it you know it's not going away. It is there. It is dangerous. Um, and while they may not be able to overthrow you know democratic governments um, in the way that they did centuries ago. Um, 
it's still a very it's still a very dangerous thing that we all sh- that we should all be aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely shocking news. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was mm. surprised it wasn't surpri- uh, breaking news, and, and it wasn't. Um, I had to kind of scroll down the BBC app to find it. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> the fact that Germany experienced a coup is reflective of the general increase in far-right extremism across Europe and America. Mm. Um, you saw it kind of rise up when Trump was coming into power, um, it's continued since then, and um, we'll talk about this maybe some more later. Mm. Um, and obviously, recently you've seen Kanye West um, kind of fall into that uh, hole as well. Mm. Um, and you know, far right extremism in Europe isn't a new thing. We've had several attacks over you know over the last decade. You guys will recall in Norway when Anders Breivik mm. murdered like f- over fifty students. Yeah, um, and you know, it's. The dawn of the internet, um, you know, which has allowed a place for you know people with these kinds of ideas to assimilate and um, organize, is is very worrying, um, and you can see it kind of transpiring in the security agencies across Europe. So you know, if you go and look on the F- or, or America, so if you go look on um, Interpol or, or the FBI most wanted websites, they will quite often have. Um, section dedicated to far-right terrorism the same way they did to Islamic terrorism post 9-11. Um, so it's it's a very real threat. Um, it's very well funded um, because in some cases, you know, you feel you have folks who aren't necessarily extreme but have, have a belief in right-wing politics who are willing to put up funding for this kind of thing. Um, and so we've seen a lot of that o- over the last few years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's very... Um, very troubling and, and worrying news. Yeah, I think obviously German, Germany is quite always a uh, key barometer of Europe as a whole now, um, and it's always been obviously pivotal in world wars and what have you. You know, Germany's always very been crucial in terms of its uh, political balance, so to speak. And I think with Angela Merkel over the number of years, you know, Germany has been you know a, str- a strong economy. You know, it's held up the EU very much in 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 the face of. Brexit and us coming out of uh, the European Union, but obviously it's you know it's industry in terms of of cars and and what have you that's been still one of their key drivers. So Germany remains you know a, a very important pillar in Europe in particular. And I think um, political uh, balance in Germany is quite key to the region. And yeah. uh, you know um, the you're surprised to hear something like this happen, but yeah, like you said, maybe it's just in this day and age, and and it just sort of captures a little bit of some. Um, you know, parts of society where unhappiness is is leading to these sort of uh, extreme acts and, or, or or attacks. And there's a level of sophistication there, right? So, mm. um, you know, f- for it to be called a coup, yeah. you know, rather than you know a violent event f- from like far right extremists. Like, yeah. Why was it called a coup? And it's because it's super sophisticated, right? Like it's mm. funded, they're weaponized, they're organized, they have like titles and hierarchy. Yeah. So, uh, and a lot of time goes into this stuff, right? And it's almost like you know in the Amadea community where we give so much voluntary you know we work together we we help each other out sure. they're kind of like they're, it's very similar to that as well for yeah. a different yeah, end of course yeah for a completely different <laughs> end um but it's it's just as effective as what i'm trying to say yeah 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 no i think um these things are, are you know becoming prevalent here i mean it, like I said, it's just surprised to hear them in, in europe you yeah, know more yeah. so um but um i think political activism generally on the whole 
has been on the increase. And sometimes that's not a bad thing in terms of, you know, people being conscious about it, being more involved, being more um, politically aware about their leaders uh, or potential leaders and, and how they would want them to shape and mold the country in the future. Uh, I think that part is a good thing. But I think it's how you go out and implement those, you know, wants you know, for political change. And I think that's where you have to stay very much within the laws of the country. Yeah. And Germany has a very awkward history, obviously, with fascism and far-right extremism. Mm. So it's it's in that sense, it's not unsurprising that folks from that country find former citizens, you know, dictators, yeah, like Hitler, etc., to you know, to be inspiring. So you know, we yeah. have the same here. Like in Britain, like I, you know, I've met people who find Oswald Mosley mm-hmm. to have had some really great ideas. You know, so. Explain who Oswald Mosley was um, the, a kind of uh, far right black shirts leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was the equivalent. Well, I mean, he didn't really get any power, but he uh, was the equivalent to Hitler in the right. UK. Right. Uh, and he was essentially trying to form the, the triangular connection between Miss, uh, Mussolini and Hitler. Right. It would have been himself as well. Right, right, right. Um, okay. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not unsurprising that you know that that, that there is far right inspiration still, um, and yeah, I think you know we'll cover it some more in, in detail mm. when we talk about um, racism, racism as well. Absolutely. Um, so what we'll do, we'll go to a uh, quick short break, and then we'll return with our main topic, which has come up um, in terms of racism, uh, the Führer regarding and around the uh, documentary on Netflix of. Uh, Harry and Meghan, and um, how that's uh, been impacting to other members, and sorry, other parts of society and uh, personality. So, free joins after the break. The promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. Number one, love. Number two, istighfar that is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is tawbah, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Tawbah cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Tawbah can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Tawbah. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's the 10th of December and you're joined here by myself, Shazal Lone, my co-presenter in the studio today, Zishan Mirza, and um, our other co-presenter, Hamza Vanderman, on the phone. Um, Hamza, uh, sorry, Zishan, tell us a little bit about our main topic, how it's come about and what the, the pertinent um, yep, points absolutely. are. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so this week we're going to be talking about uh, the racism route in the royal family. So I think it came out recently that... Um, 
uh, Megan was asked, where are you from? And I think prior to that as well, just to kind of make things worse, um, when they were doing the Oprah interview, mm. I think there was a question about what color the baby would be. Yeah, I think the royal family speculated what, what, what yeah. uh, skin uh, shade. Yeah, exactly. Charlie? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember either. But yeah, yeah. so um, so there's been a couple of issues now. And then it's collided with the release of the documentary from Harry and Meghan as well, where they're talking about some of the struggles they've experienced with the media, but alternatively the family as well. And so um, we wanted to kind of just talk about racism, how it can kind of unfold in the most unexpected of areas, um, that being family. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, how it's kind of currently gripping and dividing the nation at the moment. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Megan's race has definitely been a factor in um, a lot of the kind of media reporting that you've seen. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, Harry's called that out. You know, I think if you watch the documentary, um, you know, he talks about the time he released a statement um, referring to the racial undertones of the press. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to explore all of that today. Yeah. Um, we can dive straight into it. I, I don't know if um, we, uh, Hamza, I don't know if we glossed over you in the in the far right uh, <laughs> conversation, if you wanted to add anything to that. Otherwise, we can go straight into uh, royal racism. No, let's go straight into the main topic. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so yeah, so so with with the royal racism row so yeah so megan um was asked where are you from so let's let's start with that right um mm. now i think when i was growing up if somebody asked me where i was from it wasn't an issue right? i agree um I agree. and i don't know if that's tribute to how racist things were back then or yeah or the that, fact that yeah. it wasn't a racist thing to ask somebody that question right? yeah um now given how much diversity there is now like uh, in terms of um race mixing mm. and never you know in terms of people crossing borders etc it's become almost uh, you know if you ask that question you've got to be prepared to have a conversation right because nobody's mm. gonna just give you a spot like and you know you can say that that's where they're from well this is mm. where i'm from this is where my family are from this is where my culture is from you know and the list goes on and so People do find, I think, in the modern day, that question to be slightly insulting. And not because um, it's racist, it's because it seems as though the person is prying about your race or culture. Right. Right? And that's, for me, that's where I feel like the offences come from. I might be wrong, right? But I don't think asking the question, where are you from, is racist. I think what it implies about wanting to find out, you know, um, in almost a presumptuous way, like, I want to check if you're, you know, from a different place than I am, just so that, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of what I say, or, or something like that, yeah. right? Like maybe, yeah. and, and I think that's where the offense comes from, is, you know, why are you asking me where I'm from? What mm. relevance does it have to the conversation we're about to have? Yeah. Right? And if it doesn't, then that can be assumed to be racist. Um, and I, I think that's where I think that's where it stemmed from. I'm not saying I agree with it. Yeah, no, I think it's one of those things where I think in society are we becoming pr- too precious about certain things? Because, like you said, I, I guess when you're asked these sort of things growing up, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, things things were a lot different to perhaps how people perceive things now and again, or people take a front to things. Um, you know, there's a lot of you know. Um, 
I think identification is quite important nowadays. You know, people identify as all sorts of different things, you know, and that's something we've touched on in the past and what have you. And, and you have to respect how people identify. And I, I get that, fair enough. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't help but, you know, if you go into a forum where, you know, it's, a, for example, majority Caucasian people and you see someone of color, um, you know, sometimes you'll reach out to someone and say to, oh, you know, what's your heritage or, you know, or what's your ethnicity, right? But saying where you're from means, oh, you're not from here. Yeah, exactly. Now, but then, you know, some people genuinely, I mean, for example, say you go into a room and, and, and you see someone, you know, uh, of a different ethnicity and you go up to them just to find out, you know, to start a conversation and say, you know, oh, okay, you know, the question would be now, everyone says, oh, where's your heritage or where's your ethnicity? Yeah, yeah. And if someone says, oh, I'm from XYZ country, say, oh, I've been there, you know, or I, oh, I love that country, I've been there, whatever. It's a conversation point, perhaps. Yeah. Obviously, I think what happened in uh, with the lady who was finally sacked, I think she was actually touching the hair of the lady and that type of stuff. Oh, right, so I think okay. that's where it goes very wrong. Yeah. Right? Uh, you cannot do that. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, you're not someone to be poked and prodded at. Um, that I think takes it to a, to a different level, um, but you know I think perhaps perhaps there is an oversensitivity. Maybe there is, and you know I, I think you know I think one is you know Megan has an American accent. She's you know visibly not Caucasian. Mm. So you, I mean, you know the answer to the question already. <laughs> like she, you know, when you just, 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 yeah, go on, just right, a point of record. Yeah, just a point of record. This mm. um, uh, <clears throat> this question wasn't. This wasn't to Megan. I think a lot of the yeah. commentary around it has been uh, a bit confusing because of the documentary that was also launched this week and the previous comments that have been uh, reported to have made to um, Prince Harry, yeah. who we still don't know who it was, and someone asked um, questions about uh, his, ch his children. But mm. this one was... Lady Susan Hussey, That's who right. um, is a kind of honorary uh, royal, I think, sister-in-waiting or something. Mm -hmm. And um, she had sent this to Nguza Falami, who, who runs a black British charity uh, at one of the reception dinners. And as, as Charles yeah. said, she, he, she originally said, where are you from, while touching her hair. Mm. And then when the answer was given um, about being from Britain and running this charity, he... Uh, Lady Susie replied, you know, where, where are you really from? Yeah. Um, and then apparently there was a bit of an interrogation um, <laughs> because Miss uh, um, Bellani didn't want to kind of give the full answer or the ethnic back, her, ethnic, her ethnic background as the answer. And she felt very uncomfortable about the whole situation, mm. which I think goes to your point, Zijan, around the question and its issue being around um, prying and, and trying to find something out that someone might not actually want to say. Absolutely. And yeah. so mm. if you, you know, ask a question and the answer is, oh, I'm from Newcastle, yeah. you know, and kind of asking again and again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when someone so says, important. oh, well, you know, I'm from this part of Newcastle, mm. obviously doesn't want to give the answer, you know, kind of really going for it. Uh, it's just it's just quite rude, isn't it? Um, yeah. And then it and then I think it as you say it does show something around that the intentions of the question mm. uh, and the and the and I think that's when you when it goes into a very uncomfortable space um, because otherwise yeah otherwise at that point it gets a bit you know it get, it, it just feels uncomfortable for everyone and it's like what well, why would someone be doing that if it's visibly 
uncomfortable for the person answering the question. Yeah. Um, and it can only be because they're trying to find a point of differentiation or something. Exactly. And, you know, I think, look, you know, even if it's not a toxic, hateful thing, I think it just shows the lack of contact that the royal family have with people from different backgrounds, right? Like, if, you know, for example, you and I know how to interact with folks from different backgrounds. We know not to kind of go and push in that way. And so, mm. you know, if it, even if it wasn't toxic or hateful, I think it just came across like very, very ignorant. Um, and then if you, you know, layer it on top of the, uh, the issues that Megan's been speaking about, you know, in the documentary. Um, and, and, you know, and what I find really interesting is I think Megan's been demonized a lot in the press, right? Mm. Um, but if you watch the documentary, I, I took the time to watch it with my wife. Is You were uh, forced to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some interesting <laughs> no, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, um, you know, if, if you watch it, you actually realize that Megan, Megan has a problem, but she's not um insanely vocal about that problem mm-hmm. harry is put a chip on harry's shoulder mm. so harry's taking the fight to, you know to everyone but listening to megan's mum talk about it all and mm-hmm. how much of the racism actually was you know arriving at her doorstep for me just added a lot of clarity when people talk about megan being a social climber and a, uh there's lots of references about her marrying for money and you know, trying to climb the social ladder, etc. Mm. And it's like, well, even if she was doing that, mm. she still doesn't deserve racism. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. And, yeah. Her, and her mother speaking to all of the discriminatory acts that she's faced since she started engaging with the royal family mm. has nothing to do with Meghan, right? Mm. And, you know, we know that historically as well, you can, you know, I don't want to speculate or, or be the conspiracy theorist in the room, but you know, yeah. Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi Al-Fayed, you know, mm. they didn't have a positive experience with the royal family. Yeah. You know, and they, they had very similar alarm bells at the time around race. At a very at, different time in the world as uh, well, right? Exactly, right? Um, and, you know, I find it shocking that people can't wrap their heads around the fact that the royal family might be racist, right? Like, for me, it's, you know, Meghan's the first black person to come into the family. Mm. And Harry speaks about it at length that she's the first black person to come into the family right uh you know in modern history Mm -hmm. and um that she's being targeted specifically for that reason um and you know so when the public then begin to talk about her acting and you know that she's manipulating him etc etc i don't see that i don't see the bad in Mm. you know and i would i would love to hear from people because every time i ask you know i think I, I get the social climber argument, and I'm like, well, if, if Megan's a social climber, you know, what what's Kate? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think I think look, we hold the royal family to quite a high standard because of you know the, the fact that they represent the country. Uh, the family as a dynasty obviously has over a number of decades, you know, centuries. Um, but you know, I, I, are we going wrong by? Perhaps you know using them as the moral compass. Well, well, I mean, for me, Harry, if, okay. if because just let me finish. Oh, on, just sorry. just to say, because what you picked up on was yes, she is the first person, you know, black person that's come into the family, etc. But I think at the same time, um, you know, do families need time to adjust when someone is new because they don't know how to make the right move? They certainly didn't with Diana. 
Yeah. You know, and obviously her death, you know, I think forced them into certain changes about how they would deal with society, media, etc. Um, and obviously now this is another challenge point for them. Yeah. Hamza, any thoughts? Yeah, look, I think <clears throat> I think um, it's just, you know, the media are just all over everything. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, when the media are just close to everything, scrutinize everything, I mean, you don't have all context you don't have all the nuances it's very difficult it's very easy to kind of pick sides and stuff and it's not i don't you know i get quite uncomfortable uh just doing that generally um when you don't know all the information you know you're looking from basically we're all looking from the outside being told a, a story and a viewpoint from one or the other yeah. and you never really understand or know what's going on um and so i i i um I try not to. I try not to pay um, that much attention to uh, <laughs> yeah. to any of the specifics, if I'm if I'm honest. Um, but it does show, you know, the, the how you know it does show how the world is changing. And I think the uh, commentary around, um, you know, uh, the diversity and the comments around um, and the general uh, direction of travel, which is just generally to have more diverse families. Uh, you know, the Royal Family is a kind of institution um, going back, you know, so you know, so many years, and <clears throat> it's it, you know, it's difficult. It's obviously changing quickly, and um, and I think that is you know, that that creates challenges for them, um, and the media is on top of absolutely everything that's said. And I certainly wouldn't like you know the media reporting everything I say to everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and I I think. Sorry, gone. Yeah, and I th- I think you know it's you're, you're right. I think in general it, it's a it's a pop culture issue, which you know we we generally wouldn't cover. And I think we decided to cover it this week because mm. there there was a kind of sharp racism uh, tone there that we needed to address. Um, but you, I I think I absolutely agree. You know, the royal family, it, it's pop culture. You know, you, you're just it's it's entertainment. One thing I will say is um, I feel like William would probably continue the, the traditions of the royal family. And after watching the documentary and reading a bit more about Harry, I feel like Harry would maybe look to uh, wind down, you know, continue to wind down what Charles started. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, um, the, the racism issue is a really important one for the country at the moment. Um, how Meghan uh, kind of comes out from all of this uh, well, I, I, I think l- it'll only get let's worse. discuss it after the break. We've got the news coming up, Z. Sure. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's uh, 11 o'clock uh, on the 10th of December. You're joined by myself, Shaz Alone, and my co-presenters, Zishan Mirza and Hamza Vanderman. Um, we obviously touched on uh, our news roundup, uh, what's going on in the world. Uh, mainly we've been discussing um, the topic of racism um that's been sort of flared up a um, little bit this week uh by the royal family and the harry and megan uh, netflix documentary which um zishan has seen i haven't but obviously you read about it you know you see the snippets the media when it was coming you know i think netflix made a big thing of it they said that their website crashed when when they launched it so you know it's one of those things that obviously it's in demand that that in itself creates news yeah our people want to see it so i think there's that element as well. Um, in terms of of you know um, racism, you know, I guess the question is, 
we wouldn't say racism is acceptable by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it certainly isn't. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, I think that question that we posed, you know, are we too precious nowadays in terms of, of things? Or is that more a will for us to want to be accepted? For example, for those who live in this country, um, you know, do you want to say that you're English? Yep. You know, it doesn't matter what you look like. No, I'm English. Have that respect. Yeah. You know, I was born here. I work here. I pay my taxes here. I, you know, respect the fact that I should be English. Don't ask me anything else. Yeah. I think that's 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 something that, that you know perhaps yep. you know, should be looked at. I mean, it, the thing is, you're right, right? It's it's a balance of uh, you know sensitivity <clears throat> versus respect, right? Like I think mm. you know how sensitive should you be to comments like that, and then how how respectful should the person saying those comments be towards sure. your sensitivity, right? Mm. And I, th- you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, political correctness comes from respect. So if 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 one group asks for protections, respect and rights, mm. um, and you believe in doing that, even yeah. if you don't agree with that group, yes. they're a different group to you. Yeah then it has to work across the board, right? Yeah. Every group deserves protections, rights, Absolutely. and respect. Minorities or otherwise. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and then if, you know, if, if you say to me as a, you know, Pakistani that, you know, Zishan, if you call me a mango, I find it offensive, mm. right? I might not understand why that's offensive and I might not be able to interpret through the English language why sure. you might find that offensive. Mm-hmm. But... If you find that offensive, I have some kind of duty to try and compromise with you to reach a level of respect where we can communicate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I I don't really... So if, for me, when Meghan and Harry say something is racist, mm. right, it's downplayed by the media, it's challenged by the media and the public, uh, and they're often kind of, you know, referring to Meghan's personality, etc. Mm. But it's like, well, actually, if somebody feels like they're being racially attacked Mm. you know there's very few instances where people lie about that kind of thing there have been maybe but you know it it is a valid concern Um, and I think that's the the validity of Meghan's racism is something that is constantly questioned in the UK press yeah look it's it's I think when you're from a different ethnic background and you do look at how the press cover things I mean, you know, uh, on my workstation, I always have, you know, news pop-ups, you know, whatever it might be. And, and some of them are Daily Mail. You know, they will pop up on the right-hand yeah. side. Not that you've asked for them, but it's part of, you know, whichever, you know, software you're signed into. Yeah. And majority of the time is oh, Megan seen wearing X, Y, and Z, um, and it's portrayed in certain fashion. Um, um, you know, um, um, William's wife, Kate, she'll wear something else. Elegant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, very differently reported. Absolutely. Same thing with footballers. You know, um, you know, certain players who are of a white background, be it Jack Grealish's example or Phil Foden, them buying things for their parents and houses is seen as you know, oh, the, the kid done well. You know, yeah. he's done okay. Whereas you know, players like Sterling, who you know, uh, Raheem Sterling, who recently was burgled, uh, unfortunately had to come back from the World Cup. You know, it's a case of. Oh well, why did he come back? You know, his, his his family weren't at home, and he just lost some Rolexes. You know, the, you know, and that's the kind of thing that's taken yeah. back, right? I think Everyone's the way they portray things yeah. and the way you know, um, and for exactly the same people doing very similar things and doing well within their lives, but how that's reported and the angles that are taken from it—that's the sad part. That it's very obvious now. Hundred percent, and you know, like I think 
Oh, you know, in the documentary, there was one comparison I think that Harry makes, which is, you know, uh, Diana was actively hostile towards the media, right? Like she、mm. would push cameras, she would tell them to go away, etc., etc.、Mm. When Meghan met Harry, she wasn't used to dealing with the press,、mm. right? Like she, she was relatively famous, but not hugely, not to、no. the point where she was being followed around.、No. So when they did get swarmed by the press, yeah. Megan's reaction naturally was to treat them really well. So she would turn up and see them and smile and be like, "Do you guys want tea, etc.?" Right, which is what most of us do when builders and stuff come round, right? Right. But Harry, I thought you were going to say when you, when paparazzi came to your no, doorstep.、No. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Right. <laughs> but the papar, but the but what Harry ended up explaining to Megan was that you're you're being polite to the press、uh, each time they're outside your house. You know, you're offering them tea. You're smiling. They're taking pictures of Meghan smiling,、yeah. sending those back home to UK papers, and in the UK papers they're writing, "Meghan Markle loves the attention." Right. right. She's lapping up the the photographs. You know, she's stopping. She's posing, etc., etc. Yeah. So it's completely being misrepresented, right? And yeah. So where Meghan was just trying to be polite with the press, trying to deal with them on amicable terms. Um, and then you know Harry was like, no, you have to do what my mum did. You have to be hostile. You have. We're going to take them. You know, we'll, we'll drag them through the courts, etc., etc. Yeah. So you you see the learning curve that Meghan has had to go through with Harry.、Um, and for me, that's a, a, a already a, a very strong defence、uh, against some of the things that are said about her in the press. Hamza, what's your view on that? I think it's tricky. I, be, I think it's tricky because.、Um, There's obviously、um, some racist elements、uh, in the, the media's coverage、um, of Meghan, and I think Charles, you also noted, you know, very obvious examples、uh, of footballers, and、mm. it's also happened to actors、uh, and kind of people in that popular culture. It's just very obvious、um, that the tabloids cover them in a in a very different way.、Mm. <clears throat> Having said that, I think you know doing. You know, the, having doing this kind of high-profile Oprah interviews, a whole Netflix series,、mm. um, you know, doesn't help to、uh, let's say take some of the oxygen out. It's not the way that you would try to defuse a situation.、Uh, it's not the way that you would, you know, you use normal people would usually go about. I say normal people, people in their everyday lives、um, without public profile would kind of go about how they try to resolve issues with their friends or families. It's just It just isn't, and so to some extent, I kind of struggle to to、um, draw this line between the racism issue, which is up in, in in my eyes quite separate to、uh, Megan, yes, being an attention seeker and loving the limelight and all the rest of it,、mm. and、um, and then, but I think that's very different to the the problem where the media are, you know. The coverage of her is, you know, quite troublesome from that from that racism perspective. But she doesn't help herself because all the other bits that she's doing, kind of, they're always going to generate outsized attention, aren't they?、Um, and so I don't know. I always, I always, I always struggle with it. I think that just just on a, on a similar tangent, obviously the royal family ha- it does divide opinion. You have royalists and you have people who 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 are not.、Um, so I think you know people have different views from the, from their viewpoints.、Uh, naturally, you know some people think that there's no place. 
uh, perhaps for Megan within this royal family. Well, it's like, no, it's, if you're representing multicultural Britain, then, you know, you should represent a little bit who we are. Obviously, you can't have a quota system of who marries in, you know, but you can have quota systems in companies and boards of directors, etc., and those types of things. But if we talk about pointing out differentiations, I mean, look at how the BBC has covered this World Cup. Uh, I mean, for me, in my eyes, that's been... Uh, I was actually surprised at how tilted BBC were in terms of their um, coverage of this World Cup. I mean, what's your take on that, Hamza, before you leave us? I think they... Yeah, I, I agree with you. They certainly weren't the kind of neutral arbiter that they, you know, set out to mm. be. I think that that very first um, game where Gary Lineker gave a kind of five-minute political monologue, mm. and um, and they did, and they decided not to show the opening ceremony. Yeah, um, was I? Yeah, I found it very strange. I think they they um, got their judgment completely wrong, which was, you know, in the lead up to the tournament. Um, there was lots and lots of kind of media coverage around the is- the issues of um, in Qatar, workers' rights, LGBT rights, um, uh, corruption in getting the in in getting the tournament, etc. And I think they thought that the public wanted <laughs> yeah. you know the BBC to do that, and mm. I think they therefore thought that they had to, otherwise they would be attacked. And what ha- and I think that what happened was they went so far the other way. They ended up getting absolutely pillared for going the other way, and they haven't done anything since. <laughs> because I think you know they recognise that people don't tune in to hear Gary Lineker make political monologues. You know, yeah. they tune in to hear Gary Lineker talk about football. If they wanted to to make a kind of ethical, if they wanted to hear an ethical moral uh, arguments around the World Cup, they would go to other. They would go to another source. They wouldn't want to hear Gary Lineker discuss that with Alan Shearer and Micka Richards, wouldn't they? Mm. Um, and so I think they got that, as I agreed, I think they got that totally, totally wrong. Mm. And they went, but I think they thought they were, they were playing it down the middle uh, and they got it wrong. I think ITV did a much better job. Yeah. Um, and the reason ITV did a much better job is probably because um, people like Gary Neville are getting paid by the guitarists and so therefore are in the studio making a defence. But it just makes it more balanced, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I think that 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 that's what it was. But I mean, whether it was just the fact that, I mean, all right, it's you know stances about workers' rights, etc. We're striking in this country, workers' rights. You know how people are treated. You know, be it whichever ethnic or, or uh, you know uh, cultural bias you're from. Um, you know, again, you know, you're saying that that you know the Arab countries and that region, you know, treats uh, non-Muslims in a certain manner. Um, you know those sort of things are are where this is you know this this has been fought and very publicly and I think you know I, I read that you know obviously there was this big armband issue about wearing the rainbow colours I mean that was something you know they were really going to stand up for it but I mean like this is not the time or place just like you said you don't want Gary Lineker you know giving us political commentary why do we need our foot, footballers making stances on, on matters they probably don't understand they want a quiet life they want to play focus on fo- football on, on their football and make a lot of money doing it that's their priority Yeah, standing up for all these other rights I, in, in my view is a PR exercise 100% and I know Hamza you work in PR um, so I don't know how you you tread around these sort of topics these days what are the challenges that you see yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's pure um, symbolism, isn't it? If you want mm. to uh, make a case around a cause, um, you know, someone like Rashford has shown you how you can very successfully do that. You don't do that mm. on the pitch with a gesture. You do that 
uh, in your own time, making mm. the case strongly, passionately, uh, articulately as well in his case. But you do it in your own time, and you do it um, uh, you do it through your own channels. That's a great point. And you make the you make the case really strongly. So if these players felt that strongly about these causes. You know, they, they've got 99% of their days to make that case, to make that point, and no one's going to penalise for them for it. It's mm. only on, you know, FIFA, say, or, and, and by the way, the Premier League do this as well, right? No political gestures on the pitch. Yeah, it's not, correct. This isn't like a, this isn't a new thing in a new tournament. This has always been the case. So I totally didn't get it. And, you know, if, if the players felt that strongly about it, um, no one's stopping them from launching campaigns or... Uh, movements or coalitions or whatever in their own time to crack on yeah if you want to do it you know go for it and make the case and, and try to try to get some change you, you, you know that's that's the way to do it not through just wearing an armband on the pitch for 90 minutes of your life um, yeah. that's not going to do anything i couldn't i couldn't agree more i think you mm. know the, the to affect change that has to be the question right mm. and you know wearing an armband mm. Not only are they not aware of the issues, as you said, they're probably ignorant. They probably don't understand the, the depth of the issue. Yeah. But the probability of them actually affecting change around that particular argument in that country is zero. Mm. It's literally at yeah. zero. It's like you, they're not even. We're not even having a conversation about it, mm. right? So, what are you doing, right? Like you're not going to initiate any kind of conversation through this. Yeah, uh, and you're actually. The, the conversation that we want to have on those rights, you're actually making it harder for us to have a conversation on those particular subjects yeah. because you're creating all this mess around it that we have to address first now. Yeah, exactly. You're not respecting the laws of the country, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. So exactly. the focus is, you're disrespecting me. Why would I want to have a conversation exactly. with you now? You're, exactly. You're putting two fingers up to me, essentially. Exactly. That, and that, I think that was certain the view that was taken by the Qatari authorities, but I think that's probably the same view in the region as a whole. So, so whatever your views on the topics that they're arguing about, the the way that um, the, the England football team and FIFA and mm. you know, various organisations have gone about it uh, has been completely xenophobic towards Qataris, mm. right? Like, And if you look at it as well, I don't know if, if you've seen some of the great news coming out of Qatar, but Qatar's the first country, I think, in the history of World Cups, okay, maybe not back in the 70s, but... Mm. Um, that's managed to do crowd control to a level that's never been witnessed before. Yeah. Right? So there's food after games, no violence. How many uh, English yobbery-type convictions, well, we'll arrests? Fi- we'll find out tonight. If well, they lose against France, <laughs> yeah. that will be tested. Yeah, that will be tested. They've won all their games so far. It's all hunky-dory, isn't yeah, it? But, I mean, look, there's, there's not been any violence. There's no alcohol. You know, and it's, it's all proved to be a, a super positive environment. You know, yeah. I, I've not seen a lot of negativity coming out of it. So I think, you know, if anything, they've gone there and, and made themselves look a bit stupid. Yeah, look, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how this World Cup is viewed in retrospect because from an entertainment perspective, it's been absolutely fantastic drama. I mean, in terms of competition, the group games, you know, um, positions were changing, you know, by the minute. You know, we've had, you know, penalty drama. You've had, um, you know, underdog stories. All sorts of things have framed this World Cup really well. And I think the other thing to remember is that if England are successful which I don't think they will be. But if they are successful, 
how is this tournament then viewed? It will be reviewed romantically. You know, there'll be, a, you know, rose-tinted glasses applied to it. It will be one of the hardest World Cups to go to. I don't know if they'll frame it like, you know, they came through war or what have you. But, you know, it's been a successful tournament. And I think now, begrudgingly, it's being accepted as such because of the cultural bias that was there from before. Yeah. You know, it was like, how can this part of the world, oh, they were corrupt in getting it in the first place. You tell me which World Cup probably in the past was not corruptly fought. 100%. You know, Olympics is the same thing. But yet they want to judge, you know, a FIFA documentary came out just in, you know, in the run-up to the World Cup. Is it such, are we that concerned that that part of the world, as an example, an Islamic country, is being brought to the forefront of the of the world and being shown as, you know, perhaps, you know, the ability to organise a pinnacle world event and yeah. we're that not ready to accept that. Yeah, and well, you can criticise SEP and FIFA for being corrupt, but actually if you look at the roots of the organisation, like nobody else was able to achieve what SEP Blatter and it, kind of the people around him mm. did with FIFA and taking it into a global football tournament. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. nobody did that. You know? yeah. And okay, you know, yeah, it, it was it's corrupt, etc. But you've got nothing to compare it against. Mm. Right? It's li- FIFA is the only entity to ever achieve that kind of global coordination, mm. right? Even at a political level, you could argue FIFA's done things that some global bodies yeah. haven't been able to. Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of corruption there. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think the the football is, is, is uh, innocent and you know, yeah. organically. So Yeah, absolutely. It's a universal religion, as they say. Yeah. Uh, Hamza, I know you need to leave us very shortly. Any last points from you on the subject before you leave? Uh, just wishing England all the best for this evening. Oh, that's a cheap one, isn't it? That's a cheap one, isn't it? <laughs> and commiserations to you, Charles, for yesterday. Hamza, your line's cutting out. I think we need to lose you now, unfortunately. I think whatever is, is very important that you need to do for the rest of your day. Uh, enjoy. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Hamza. Um, yeah, welcome, So, yeah, no, I think, look, I think, I think it's interesting the fact that this woke up as an event you know, the Meghan and Harry um, documentary, they bring up responses from people, you know, and I think it's important that while we recognize that there are differences uh, within one another, that we look to understand what that is and try and have those conversations, as you mentioned, Z. I think that was, that was really, really important, you know, and I, I think we don't want to get to that stage. When we mentioned this armband issue about the rainbow colors, I actually read that um, some of the countries... Um, namely the Saudis, I think they wanted to wear an Islamophobic armband, meaning, you know, don't be against Islam. Um, I didn't think we want to get into that kind of, you know, sort of race, you know, between people that everyone starts wearing armbands for things that, you know, that they, they want to guard against and what have you. I mean, let's discuss the topics. Let's understand what the differences are, uh, what your viewpoint is and why these things are there. And then, you know, you continue from there and you find out what's viable and what's not. Yeah. Um, but ultimately a country will make a stance you know we're not a global human race in the sense that everyone is you know sort of have you know, governed by the same rules every culture and creed has its own way and i think that's something we we need to be accepting of uh in our differences because when we talk about islam um you know the holy prophet uh may peace be upon him uh in his farewell sermon you know, he laid what, what was said as the momentous speech that laid the foundations for world peace. That was that's what uh, His Holy Holiness Hazrat Muhammad said about the Holy Prophet's last sermon: uh, that all people are born equal, no matter where they hail from or the color of their skin. 
and the Holy Prophet proclaimed that all people were born equal, that a white person was not superior to a black, nor was a black person superior to a white, brandishing an eternal torch illuminating the path towards universal human rights. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, pronounced that all human beings were born equal and had the same rights. Yeah. And that's something I think that's been, I think we lose that a little bit in terms of, you know, what we talked about was the intention of people when they bring up racism. Is it for them to say that, look, I'm better than you? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of basically what's been happening in these sort of key events. And I believe these key events are not bad things to discuss these matters over. Yeah, because I think perhaps before these were swept under the carpet. Um, you know, Hamza jokes. I mean, he was joking with me, and we were discussing it before. You know, I think there's quite a few of us of a certain age group who support, for example, Brazil in the World Cup. Just to give you an example. Yeah. But the, the flip side to that is you don't support England. So I think how, how do you contextualize that argument? And I was having a discussion with a friend of mine um, just yesterday about it, and he said, "I said." You know, he said, oh, I said, did your kids support? He says, I'm a kid support England. And I told him, you failed as a father, you know, <laughs> as a joke, yeah, right, obviously. Yeah. But he said, but he goes, and he explained it that his son said, look, um, your dad, you're English. I was born in England, so I'm English. My friends are English. I play football, so I'm supporting England. And and what we were discussing is that when, when you grow up, perhaps in, you know, in the 80s and even the 90s, your view of football was if you played within yourselves, within your own, you know, you know, culture, fine, you know, but very few people were accepted playing in outside clubs, I think, at that stage. Yeah. Football, going to football matches wasn't really an option, yeah. um, you know, because you were worried that, you know, hooliganism, you know, w- you know, were you in danger? Were you be accepted? You know, in those days, you know, black players used to have bananas thrown at them, you know, monkey monkey yeah. noises were made. In Italy that still happens apparently. Yeah. Which is quite sad to hear and see in this day and age. But I think I think it's how you're treated sort of it's hard coded then into your DNA about what you associate yeah. with and what you don't want to associate with. And I think that's what's happened. Perhaps, you know, people of a certain generation and perhaps that changes going forward. I don't know. We'll have to see. That I, I, I think you touched on a really good point there. And for me growing up, I loved football. I played a lot of football and uh, I was around my cousins a lot mm. who happened to be Brazil supporters. Um, but the reason I couldn't bring myself to support England was was because of that, right? It was because of... You know, it was the hostility. It was a level of not being able to relate to people who are part of the English football culture. Mm. Um, And then, you know, and then so then obviously I used to relish in the fact that Brazil were much better than England. right? Like, And it was almost an identity thing. And then as I got older, you know, I was like, okay, my nationality is English. I should probably support England despite how bad they are. And you know, but um, I think you do have this dual duality uh, in in Asians. Uh, a yeah, little bit. There, there, look, there is a difference, and look, look I, I understand why people tend to support different things. You look, if you look at anyone who was born in the eighties and the nineties, as a football fan, club football fan, as an example, anyone born in the sort of seventies and eighties supported Liverpool. Say, well, this is the most successful team. Yeah. You know, anyone who supported uh, was born in the 90s supported Man United because they were the most successful team. Perhaps Asians like to aspire towards success. Yeah. You know, the other word you will have is glory hunters. Yeah. Which, you know, it's an easy thing to say, but perhaps that was an easier way of, of being accepted 
into broad society and culture. Oh, who do you support, mate? Oh, I support Man United. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a Man United. Most popular fan and most yeah. popular club in the country, you know, yeah. especially in London. Um, you know, but I think those are the sort of things where I think identity and, and these sort of things, will that change? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, how do you teach the next generation? You know, because sometimes, you know, you, I mean, sport is something that we're passionate about. Yeah. You know? I think in terms of religion, that's different. That's part of your identity. I mean, some people say sport is part of their identity. Yeah. Um, it can be for some. It's important for some. And for some, it's absolutely non, you know, it's not, not a, not a big thing. But I think identity and, and who you are, how you pass that across is quite important. And I think that's what we're sort of treading around now uh, yep. with all these uh, societal questions that pop up. It goes back to our, our show last week, doesn't it? Uh, sorry, last month on yeah. um, on role models and mm-hmm. you know being able to see kind of people you can relate to in mm. in positions of success, right? Yeah. And like, let's talk about that for a second, right? So, like in football, I remember watching a documentary. I think when I was like sixteen, seventeen years old, mm. it was produced by Channel Four, and it was on Pakistani and Indian boys in British football mm-hmm. and trying to become professional football players. Um, and, you know, they were doing tours up and down the country. There was this one journalist and he was talking to young Pakistani lads, mm. you know, f- fully British, you know, English accents. You can tell born and bred here, proper lads. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, they basically spoke of how they were like top scoring captain of their like semi pro team for like five to ten years. All the players below them went on to get contracts. They never got contracts. Mm. Right. So it was institutionalized. Right. Like the yeah. level of racism that we're actually talking about today. Yeah. You know, even in football, it was fully institutionalized. Mm. Right. I mean, mm. we don't see any Pakistani Indian. I mean, what, very few. One or two. One or yeah, two. Yeah. yeah. Um, and only now as well, we're just seeing another boxer come through. I think like mm. Amir Khan, I can't remember his name, but he's quite young, a Pakistani kid. Mm. And, you know, even he was talking about it. He was like, you know, apart from Amir Khan, I had nobody really, apart from Prince Nassim, obviously prior to that. But, yeah. You know, he didn't really have anybody. And, mm. you know, you can put that down to issues like racism. Mm. Yeah, um, no, I think when you talk about, because I think like in this country, football represents a lot about the people of this country, right? So do they want to see, you know, someone of a different culture representing them accordingly? Yeah. Now, you know, I think um, the acceptance of, of black players, as an example, came through because of, you know their 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 physical prowess, perhaps in the in those early eighties, as opposed to now, you know the skill element of the game. Now I, I don't think color really, um, in terms of ability, it wouldn't stop perhaps you know between black black and white players, an example. But yeah, there there is a, still a somewhat of a resistance uh, for Asians to either break through, Definitely. you know, and what have you. But I think look, that's that's the the sporting element. I think we need to look more. As well, you know, at the broader part of society and what we're accepting. I mean, you know, you know, those who work in the city and finance, you can see that multiculturalism, you know, is is living and breathing there. Yeah. You know, how, whether it translates into board of directors. Now, I'm not sure. But when I look in American companies, um, you know, you focus on a lot of companies there in the States, Visa, Facebook, they've all got people of Indian origin mainly yeah. as their Running. CEOs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and they're multi-billion conglomerates. They're yeah. not small companies, right? Yeah, um, yeah that, that's an interesting point because you're right. I think trend-wise as well, we do see a lot of Pakistani Indians in the finance industry here as well. Mm. Um, and you know, maybe it's that then. Maybe it's actually 
uh, minorities are attracted towards particular industries rather than being spread across, you know, in an evenly equitable way. Well, you know, also, you, you know, you've got Rishi in charge of the country. Yeah. You were the chancellor. You know, you've got people in finance. So, you know, you're good to do our accounting, but we don't want to see you wearing the three lions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but, you know, but I mean, like, look, England cricket, for example, has, has been successful. You know, they've yeah. brought in players like Adil Rashid, Moin Ali, you know, people of an ethnic background. And they represent the country and they are very English, you know, in terms of they're proud to be English, you know. Um, so I think there's been successes in certain parts, yeah. you know, of society. And I, I think that's something that's, that's important to look at, but um, and and I guess Rishi's a good one, right? Because uh, I, I was debating with my friends about how relatable his success is. Now, hmm. I think recently, no, I would say that I don't think anyone can really, really relate to the kind of world Rishi lives in, uh, as uh, <coughs> prior to being <coughs> chancellor as a Goldman Sachs banker, etc. Right? I don't think people could relate to that, but people can relate to his uh, childhood story, right? Hmm. So, mum and dad set up a pharmacy uh, and, you know, middle-class lifestyle, but somehow Rishi is able to leverage that and, you know, become highly, highly successful. Mm. Um, now, I can safely say that is the case for a lot of uh, middle-class families mm. uh, in the Asian and Pakistani communities who have actually, you know, on, on very kind of average menial jobs, mm. been able to pr- produce... Yeah. highly highly successful uh children yeah right so that to me is relatable mm-hmm. i think the path after that you know private schools goldman sachs access to like private equity hedge funds you know mm. higher high amounts of money etc that's where it starts to delve off a bit in terms of relatability but you know i think for me you can have a certain degree of pride that an indian man has you know managed to come into power Mm. He didn't do it democratically, mm. which for me would have been yeah. a bit more organic. And that. the reason I say that is because I feel like I need to see and hear viscerally from the country that they're willing to have a brown man mm. in charge of it, rather mm. than the conservatives doing it as some kind of tactical PR uh, exercise. Yeah, because obviously they avoided going to the party uh, membership to vote on this part of the leadership they capped it at an mp level right exactly and i think you know for them it was right we've got um we've got a lot of young people in the country you know we need to keep this sharp we need to keep it trendy um we either go to general election or we pick somebody from a diverse background mm. who happens to know his economics really really well yeah so uh i think it was quite a tactical move to bring Rishi in yep. uh, to please people. Uh, and I think it's worked, right? I think Rishi's seen as the rational, sensible, forward-looking, progressive conservative. I don't think he's seen as this kind of old-school, sensible, uh, you know, not willing to change. I think he's seen as quite radical and quite progressive as a conservative. And, and I think that's worked in terms of um, qualming some of the, the issues around the conservative party's image. Question for you, just um, obviously, you know, this is a bit off the cuff, but in terms of, you know, we talked about role models in, in last month, and that's something obviously we're looking today, we're talking about racism, we're talking about, you know, whether someone is, uh, you know, acceptable, you can identify with their story, relatable, etc. Um, for us as Muslims, obviously, you know, we talked about the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that, you know, he, he gave us a template of, of how to look at the world and, you know, and talked about, 
you know, acceptance of all and people being equal. You know, those are the things we aspire to even now, and we struggle to get to that point. But, you know, how do we as Muslims, um, you know, relate to someone whose message came centuries ago, yep. but yet is considered the most important person on this planet? You know, in terms of influence, you know, in, in some of uh, these, um, you know, century type debates that they have, they, it's clear that, that his the Holy Prophet came out as the most influential person in the 21st century, in this time, yep. even now. How has it been such that? I mean, how how do you how do you find that relatable? Or, you know, how do you how do you find that importance? It's 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 such a great question, and this is and you know, and for anybody who's like growing up and they're still trying to understand religion, mm. you know, I, I hope you're listening to this because um, here's how I found it relatable, right? Like, mm. so I'm growing up, uh, I'm going to mosque, I'm going to Ijtima, and I'm learning about the Prophet peace be upon him, and I'm learning about his teachings, mm. and that then you know kind of slows down a bit i then start kind of becoming integrated into western society i'm going mm. to school um i get to university and i start to learn about philosophy i start to learn about plato and socrates mm. um i start to learn about the political institutions and the systems that govern us the principles behind them etc mm. and it's all familiar to me it's right. all been said to me before and the logic doesn't have to be explained to me. Mm. I can understand from a philosophical perspective why any particular school of thought is applied to anything. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and my morality was super like super solid in under, in, in exploring those ideas. Mm. I concept never had of rights. Concept of rights, yeah. concept of giving, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, everything, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the concept the concept of society is built upon the, the um, notion of, of giving and serving, you know, etc. So mm. it just felt so familiar. And it was because I had learned the Quran, right? And somebody had t- uh, taken the time to sit down with me and explain to me various aspects of the prophet peace be upon him's mm. personality that led him to be so successful mm. that led his uh, movement and his society at the time to be so successful right and so even if you're not religious it's you know in your head it's impossible for you to be like well what you're explaining to me now as this kind of high level thing that i need to get a degree or a master's actually i learned that when i was a kid mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. somebody was explaining to me how the prophet peace be upon him would have done it yeah. So I think, you know, entirely relatable, you know, mm. because otherwise who else do we relate to in history, right? Like in that way, we don't. And I, I think it's it's because of that. It's because so many of the philosophical positions, you know, about your life, about economics, about politics, mm. you know, they've already been set um, and mm. we've been practicing them for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that's why I find it uniquely relatable. I guess that's why it echoes through the through the ages, right? I think you know the Holy Prophet's message obviously was a universal message, and that that applies not just to the people, but in terms of the institutions, uh, you know, and the way we govern, the way we treat others, the way we are with one another. I think that's the um, you know the the universal appeal, shall we say. Uh, of 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 the message that was was brought, you know, by the Holy Prophet, you know, from Allah. So I think it's quite important, you know, that that people can see that difference, not just the fact that it's something I was taught, I believe in it, you know, but oh, I can't yeah. explain it, you know. It, it's interesting to you know hear that that you could apply it 
to things that you learn later on in life. Because I think what tends to happen is with education, people tend to move away from religion sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's strange that you you think the more you learn that you actually you know better than what was perhaps taught before. Yeah. But I mean, well, I think it's this kind of misunderstanding between objective information and mm. subjective, right? But mm. and some people seem to think that education is all objective information, and it isn't. It's teaching you how to objectively look at things, how to use impartiality and mm. you know th- critical thinking to look at things. But it's not giving you all of the answers, yeah. right? And you still do need spiritual, philosophical approaches to understand complex things. Mm. Now, setting up a society is one of those complex things, right? And what I found so amazing when I was studying politics was, you know, we were constantly going back to philosophers and trying to understand what the tenets are of a, of a strong and successful society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it had been laid out so well in, you know, in the Quran. So... Yeah. Um, I wanted to actually read out something that I picked sure. up on a, a speech, which I think covers not only the, the stuff we've spoken about in terms of environmentalism, but also racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was from um, Dr. Ijaz Ahmed Gumar, um, mm-hmm. and he gave this speech in 1993. Okay. Uh, and it was a multi-faith symposium held in Winnipeg. Okay. Um, and what he said was... Um, I'll start uh, with a quote from um, the the Quran, which he he said. So he said, uh, and I'll quote him. Mm. Now I'm going to highlight the Magna Carta of human fraternity and unity contained in the Holy Quran. The verse reads, O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes for the sake of easy recognition. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of God is the most righteous among you. Surely God is all-knowing, all-aware. And then he goes on to say, This verse lays down the basis of all comprehensive and all-pervading brotherhood slash sisterhood of all human beings. It is addressed to and is aimed at all human beings and is not confined to the believers of the Quran. As a matter of fact, the whole message of the Quran is for all people everywhere. This particular verse strikes at the roots of false and conjectural notions of racial arrogance and superiority. It affirms that the worth of a person is not to be judged by the pigment of skin, rank, social, or economic status, or such measuring tools, but the standard is what a person can do as a moral and social human being in discharging his responsibilities and obligations to God and to his creation, including all flora and fauna. So, you know, it it comes down to the only real purpose you have, you know, is is to do with what what impact you, mm. know, you can have, and it actually has nothing to do with what you're called or what color your skin is, and and you know, I know it's such an obvious statement, but I I think um, it's one that we have to be reminded of quite often. Yeah, I think I think sometimes in that uh, want to be recognised, we want to be recognised for what we're different as opposed to what we have in common. Yep. And I think that's what people sometimes, you know, really end up standing for and end up you end up dividing us more so than, you know, uh, you know, f- finding those common grounds and where discussions can be had. You know, we, I think the, the beauty of Islam is that look, um it, it has parameters uh, and it gives you structure and it gives you guidance. And I think that's important because I think as a human race, if you you're not given some set of rules, 
you'll always veer towards then whatever your heart desires, right? And sometimes that may not be the right thing for you in the long run. And I think the openness of conversation to respect and to have conversations is important, but then equally to to agree to disagree. I think those sort of things, when you put them in place, allow people to function and, and for, for there to be a certain amount of at least harmony uh, in society. And I think that's where sometimes now, in particular, I think we 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 as a people feel the need to fight. You know, there, there's always that thing, I need to fight for my identity to say that I am this and you will accept me as X, Y, and Z. Now, I think that's where where these difficulties have arisen because then people who are sort of, say, quite firmed in, in terms of maybe their faith and what their faith teaches them, they'll react badly to that because it's something that perhaps they don't agree with. Yeah, And I think that's that's where this, this difficulty sometimes arises, that perhaps it's sometimes better to find out where we are common and and view those points as the base to discuss then okay look but these are our differences so you know as opposed to saying i'm different and you should accept me as x y and z i think that's that's where we sort of run into trouble sometimes yeah absolutely and you know i think the other thing is as well is let's let's look at the pros of being diverse right Mm. so let's let's talk about why you shouldn't be racist right is that there's actual tangible reasons why you shouldn't (laughs) like so not obviously you know apart from being you know in harmony with your fellow human being Mm. but you know uh, i I work in the investment space for example and um you know uh, gender investing uh investing where the board has um diversification in in ethnicity Mm. and gender um, it's proven to have success in in a, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a numbers way, right? Right. So old school bankers were like, we don't believe in any of this responsible investing stuff, ESG, gender yeah. investing, it's all nonsense, right? Yeah, it's just fashion, right? Yeah, it's just fashion, right. Which, and to be fair, for about five to 10 years, that had some weight to it because nobody really knew. Yeah. We just thought, okay, maybe we're just doing this because it's airy-fairy, looks good. Yeah. We don't actually know if it's going to bring in returns, yeah. right? But lo and behold... ESG, environmental social governance, has um, like a whole range of benefits to it that we didn't even know about, and it has tangible result. It provides tangible results right. to, to the bottom line of the balance sheet. Right, right, which if is all that matters in finance. Which right? is all that matters, right? Now we've uh, we've just uh, we've invested in a in a bank in India. Uh-huh. Now the bank is entirely made up of women. Right, right. It, it, you're not. It, 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 Slightly counterintuitive, but you're not. There's no men in the board, right? Mm-hmm. All women, uh, and it's uh, focused for uh, single, divorced, uh, okay. low-income uh, right. females. Insane level of success. It's brought, right. I think, thirty, forty, forty thousand women through micro, trans, uh, through kind of micro credit, yeah, microfinancing yeah. Mm-hmm. has brought them into creditworthiness. You've right. got now an extra thirty, forty thousand women in India who can start a business. Right, right. So, like that level of diversif- diversification can have mm. positive net results, right? Like, yeah. and so, I think people need to really. St- it's more of a modern phenomena, mm. but. Um, there's actual now tangible proof as to what diversification can do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we have to keep talking about it, um, but we have to keep talking about it in a way where we're not demonizing racists and we're kind of always highlighting them to them about why it's easier to not be racist and more successful yeah. not to be racist. I think media plays a very key important part of that as well. I think that's what we keep saying, that sometimes you react badly to 
you know, for example, this the whole thing about supporting England is because what the media says, oh, you know, three lions, etc. You know, you know all those sort of things. It becomes very English. It becomes very tribal. You know, and it, it's associated to it. so that the reaction to someone who's, who's who's from a different background is that I reject and I reject it, but I don't identify with that. So therefore, you won't get my support in these matters. So I think that's something where the, where the media is it's super important. You know how they project and how they place themselves and how they place these issues because I think that then causes a reaction. Um, so I think that's something to be aware of. Yeah, and you know the the media. And we spoke about the media at length today, obviously, mm. the, the, the Megan thing. And, yeah. you know, I think, you know, even with we're talking about football, you know, Raheem Sterling and the way he was covered in the press. And mm. I think there's a real, you know, one thing that I just cannot be neutral on is, is the media in this country. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's a really toxic style of media and encourages mm. a very uh, xenophobic, hostile style of debate yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we struggle. I think even the BBC has, in, in, at times in the last few years, struggled to be the impartial kind of news service that we needed it to be. So so would you say, just developing that topic onwards, is someone like Elon Musk right in wanting to take over Twitter and making it totally open so that whatever is reported has no agenda, it's just raw and it's, you know, it's from tell you freedom what, of speech. I'll tell you what, we're, let's, um, we'll carve out freedom of speech for one of the shows. I yeah, think, yeah, sure. Because I'd sure. love to hear what Hamza has to think about this as yeah. well. But the, the, the Elon Musk thing for me is hilarious, right? I'm, I'm slightly anti-freedom of speech, and that's why I think we should get, do a show about it, right? Okay. <laughs> because, um, you know, all of the freedom of speech type changes that he mm. wanted to make, he ended up having to reverse, yes. right? Because we know that, having a commercial business venture is not compatible with having a freedom of speech venture. Correct, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, and Twitter uh, immediately reminded him of that. So, mm-hmm. let's talk about it. Yeah, no, I think I think that we'll definitely push that on. Um, but just in terms of media coverage, just an alternate, that's why this came to my mind, is that you've seen quite a reaction in Qatar to two things. One is, I saw... One with Israeli TV were going up and, and going up to supporters. As soon as they told them they were Israeli TV, it's like, nah, nah, don't, don't record me. Uh, no, thank yeah, you. I don't want to or the all second response was they had, you know, a group of England fans and you're watching them, the Orient fans, you know, you know it's coming out. And he goes, yeah, it's coming home, etc. And then the second point was, free palestine and it's like that's been a a major thing at this tournament right that these sort of things are being said now i'm just saying that that's a very i would have never have thought that i would see england fans saying this sort of stuff yeah you know when you when it gets reported in the press it's just about the football and what's happened with the fans is normally okay there's been hooliganism and then that's stopped and then that's been the the other thing and i guess if the 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 treatment of england fans was bad in qatar we would have heard about that yeah um, you know, and I've I spoke to people who actually went to the tournament from here, friends of mine who attended the tournament. And they said, you know what, you know, it, it's it was nice to go to this atmosphere because obviously they're, they're Muslim background anyway, but they're England fans. Um, and when they were talking to me, they said, you know what, the only one thing was the people sitting outside in McDonald's outside of the Qatar stadiums were quite depressed. You know, they were stirring their coffee and what have you. And I said. That's because they're actually sober and have to watch England play, <laughs> yeah. right? So sometimes, don't time. get me wrong, England, you know, they put on some good performances, but they put on some dire yeah, performances, mostly. you know, against the USA and those sort of things. They were, they were atrocious, yeah. you know, but 
you know that's the nature of of knockout football you know and and i think athlete, athletic performance dips you know we expect you know a certain thing from players all the time and it's never going to happen but i'm just saying it's it's interesting to see how different media you know mediums have um you know have now come out yeah. and you see different things to perhaps what have been reported you know 15 20 years ago so i think there are some benefits but obviously there are you know some some hindrances which comes also which we can we we can look at yeah definitely yeah no no absolutely and you know on the israel palestine thing as well i think you know it is is really interesting to see fans shout, shouting free palestine i think british folks in general especially on the left anyway hmm. um have a special empathy towards the israel palestine situation yeah. um, out of all the foreign yeah. policy issues that there are true um and it's i don't know if it's because britain played a role in carving out israel mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, free Palestine is you know is it, it's a big thing over here in the UK. Even when I was at uni, you know, free Palestine is like the biggest movement. Yeah, look, I think it's a proxy for being Muslim, right? Almost yeah. to a degree here, where yeah. I think it's I think it's different for us because when we discuss Islam, we represent our community, right? Which is uh, the Ahmadi Muslim community. And I think that's we have an identification which allows us to then represent that. But I think for perhaps, um, you know, the, the broad Muslim who's there, you know, and, and their beliefs, it, representing Palestine is almost a proxy of saying that, that they are Muslim brothers and we represent them. Obviously, we do as well. We don't discount them as that. Yeah. Um, but perhaps, you know, that that issue, and it's been there, as you said, from uni days. But it's interesting how it's come up quite a bit in this World Cup and the way it's been brought about, you know, and it brings that issue to the fore again. Um, so it's interesting, you know. Yeah. What causes are picked up on now? Because I thought this was going to be, you know, the whole freedom of speech, you know, you know, anti-Islam to a degree, simply because of its opposition towards, you know, LGBTQ and how they're treated, etc. And I think yeah. uh, that's kind of faded away now. Whether that's because England have been successful in this tournament as well has sort of gone along with that, and the fact that I don't think the BBC, as Hamza mentioned before, read the room. I think they got it very wrong. Yeah, yeah. They you know, they tried to be disparaging from the start. You know, blocking off. You know, it, for Qatar as, an, as a nation, the opening ceremony really is your identity. What happens after that? They're not a footballing team. They're not going to do well. They're not yep. going to push on this tournament. That's why I think perhaps Morocco has been really one of those big things that have been, you know, supported and what have you. Um, but, you know, I was talking to one of my um, associates in, in, in East Africa. And I said, yeah, no, Morocco have done well, etc. And I thought, yeah, he's going to come out and say, yeah, you know, they're representing Africa. He said, to be honest... He goes, in the Moroccan team, I see less people of an African background, so to speak, as opposed to you, perhaps you'll see in the French team. Yeah, yeah. Because they're a majority black African players. Exactly, yeah. You know, so it's also, you know, how things are presented can be, you think one thing, but, you know, perhaps, you know, within those continents, you know, they they see other people as representing them. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, you know, even if you open up a, a world map, you know, I was with a friend recently and you know, we were having a coffee and there was a, a, a really old map and we opened it up and, you know, you begin to realise that actually our identities are based off of, uh, you know, some bloke who decided to draw a bunch of lines on on, mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. on a map. Yeah. And, you know, like even even the rivalry between Pakistan and India, like I won't yeah. go into it, right? Yeah. But, you know, India is essentially a continent, right? Like yeah. Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, mm. you know... Everyone in India and those countries mm. are the same, right? Like, you will have people who, uh, in Sri Lanka, who look like people in Pakistan, 
mm-hmm. right? Or from the same, like, why is that? You know, like yeah. this, and it, they're not, they'll call themselves Sri Lankan, mm-hmm. but they'll have like Pakistani, like some kind of connection to, and it's not even Pakistan, is it? Because Pakistan's a relatively new country. It's yeah. like slightly older than Israel. Yes. So, you know, the the differences that we're always referring to, they just don't mm. exist in real life, right? Mm. Like, and just to go back to the kind of race thing, you know, it, it's kind of, and and football is a classic display of that. And yeah. know, what you were just saying is mm. a classic, the French team and the Moroccan team. Yeah. You know, it's just, what's the point? <laughs> well, we have, we have to draw lines. If, if there were no countries, there'd be no World Cup. Yeah, yeah. The world would be a lot quieter, yeah. you know. But uh, but yeah, no. I think uh, I think generally it's 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 nice to celebrate, you know, when the world does come together in these sort of things. And I think it's nice to see that the issues that were trying to be brought about for whatever agenda have fallen into the background to a large degree, and and you know the. The celebration of you know sport as such has, has come to the fore, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, I think uh, obviously it's been a, it's been a, it's it's you know when you're entertained, you know, especially during this period during you know the festive season, things do tend to wind down. You know, things are a lot more quieter. It's been amazing for me as a sports fan to you know have four games of football a day to look yeah. forward to, and when the last two days there weren't any games, you have withdrawal symptoms. Like yeah. what? What? There's no game. Yeah. What do I you know <laughs> exactly. So you know, so, you know, might actually do some work. Yeah. You know, um, but um, but you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's also fun. You know, you hear it on the radio. There is a feel good factor. You know, uh, you know, as as much as. Yeah, you know, I will say is I don't support England in football. I just don't. Yeah, it just doesn't come naturally right. to we me. We know Shazza, yeah. yeah, so you know, I've made that you know made that quite clear. But it's nice to see the country. You know, is excited. You know, perhaps overexcited to a large degree. You know, in terms of chances. But yeah, you know, I guess that. I mean, I, I, if I was living in a different country, perhaps I'd view the media in that way as well. Maybe France are the same. Maybe Spain are the same. I don't know. So I wholly agree with you. I feel like the the support in this country is disproportionate to the talent the team has. <laughs> <laughs> like, but um, you know, it's a good thing. It's good that you know the morale is always up, and you know, yeah. everyone's going yeah. for it. Yeah, it's 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 um, yeah. I can take it in small doses. Let's put it that way. I mean, I, I like the players generally speaking. I think there's some very good players. There's certain players who I think are very overrated, and I think there is an element of how they are portrayed in the media and how they're accepted or how their their shortfalls are covered depending yep. on race. Sometimes I see that very openly. Yep. And it's sad to see we saw it after the Euros when when, when uh, Marcus Rashford and, and Bakaya Sacco missed penalties. Yep. You know, it was vitriolic, the, was. the reaction. Would you have seen that, you know, maybe you know to someone else if Harry Kane had missed a penalty, for example? I'm not sure. I'm yep. not sure. Maybe from Arsenal fans, but not from the general, you know, English supporting public. I don't think they would go against people and in I, that way, or, d- or, or or attacking for his racism. Yeah, you know, or for his culture. Sorry, or yeah. his colour. I agree, and you know, I want to leave. I want to leave on this note, and I want to rile up all the Premier League fans. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, because we're supposed to have the most competitive league in the world, mm-hmm. but the team that we produce as a dream team of that league, yeah does not reflect that agreed agreed and i think if you actually take that point forward and expend it even higher the premier league that you talked about being you know the most competitive league in the world the top team is owned by the uae <laughs> okay yeah i don't even think about the next that. upcoming team which is newcastle is owned by saudi yeah so you know it's <laughs> it's interesting when you see the fans of those 
clubs, especially Newcastle, because they're new in the sense that right, they've always had a big fan base, but they're owned by Mike Ashley, who never pumped any money in that club. Yeah. Now they've got almost a bottomless pit of money, right, yeah. right to back on. Now the other day they showed, you know, their own uh, LGBTQ Newcastle supporters, and they said, you know, we're um, in two minds. You know, we're 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 a little bit unsure about this, right? In the sense that, listen, you're going to get success because of the amount of money that's being pumped Absolutely. into your club. Yeah, you say. wouldn't be being interviewed right now if your club was in the second division. Yeah, yeah. You are where you are because of what's yeah. about to happen to your club. 100%. The fact that you know you oh, you've recently bought a Brazilian international as an example, you would be nowhere near people. You know 100%. that player ilk if you didn't have this money. So you are accepting of it. You are happy, 100%. you know, that your club is being pushed up and its agenda is being pushed up. So Yeah, the days of building a team up like Sir Alex Ferguson did are long gone, I think. Yeah, yeah, no. I think, look, in, in, this, in this environment that we live in, and, and this is football globally, it's money, you yeah. know, and it's constant investment as well. Yeah. You know, it's not so much you can nurture and, you know, build a team. The patience isn't there. You know, you've seen it with various clubs. Chelsea, you can win the Champions League and be sacked a year later, yeah. you know. And then you get other people who, you know, like Sarax Ferguson in his time, Arsene Wenger in his time, and I think Pep Guardiola, but, you know, people will always judge them by different parameters. Because if you compare Alex Ferguson and Pep, probably similar in terms of European Cups, I think Pep has more, but he's considered a failure in this country. So it's interesting. So I just want to say thank you, Zishan, for thank your you. contribution to the show today. It's been a very interesting topic. It's taken us far and wide. Please do join us when we return 